Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, 2 Kings chapter 14. We had just opened the divine door of Holy Scripture into 2 Kings 14 last week when we were out of time. So we're going to continue with that this week, and we're even, we'll even have to take a little bit more time next week to finish this action-packed and information-laden chapter. Well, we were introduced to the latest king of Judah, Amatzia, whose father was the murdered King Joash. Thus, when we turn the page from chapter 13 to chapter 14, we moved from Israel back to Judah. And we found out that Amatzia was just like his father, that in many ways he ruled righteously, but yet, among other indiscretions, he allowed the Bamot, the high places, to remain in operation in Judah. Now, while on the surface this looks largely like a political policy that was designed to, to maintain support of the citizens, in reality, it reflects something much more insidious. Recall that these high places were essentially private family altars that many of the Hebrews preferred to sacrifice upon rather than following God's Torah and going to the temple. They were well, they used to they were used to sacrifice to Jehovah. But even so, to allow them to continue to operate was wrong. But what this demonstrates to us couples nicely with the opening subject of last week's lesson that used the frog in the kettle fable as an analogy. That is, the use of these high places was so normal and customary in Israelite society and it had been used for so long that it was simply an accepted, it was an unquestioned part of Hebrew religious custom in both the northern and the southern kingdoms. The people of Israel and Judah had become blind to the historical fact that the use of high places was purely pagan in its origin and in its character. No amount of trying to convert their use from the worship of false gods to worshiping the God of Israel made it acceptable in God's eyes since God never gave anyone on earth authority to declare holy what he has declared as unauthorized. Its legitimacy wasn't called into question except by an occasional prophet or a brave Levitical priest whose unwelcome rant against the use of these bamot was considered that of a fanatic. Of someone who was completely out of step with the contemporary Hebrew religious practices. The bottom line being that the Hebrews didn't just jump overnight from being totally dedicated to a Torah observant lifestyle to something that was nearly unrecognizable as being biblically sound. Baby step by baby step, over decades and even centuries, the Torah was pushed to the background 
while man-made observances and rituals and doctrines rose up to modify or even replace God's commandments. Thus, as both Israel and Judah were racing towards that day of reckoning, in which God would say to them that as a result of their rebellion and placing their trust in these invented traditions and doctrines and practices, they've lost their privilege to live in His kingdom. Soon they would be vomited out. They were generally oblivious to their condition. In fact, over and over we read how the people and their leaders were in total denial. And when someone would dare to point out their wrongness and wickedness, that person was either run out of town or stoned to death. Now remember, by now, it had been over 200 years since David was king, over 500 years since God gave Moses the Torah. The Torah had been given to a wandering group of desert dwellers who lived in tents. So for these more modern Hebrews who lived, in a, uh, lived a settled life in their own country, in towns and cities with stone houses, who grew crops on terraced fields, they established trades route, trade routes to distant lands, they formed political alliances with their Gentile neighbors, and they were ruled now by a Hebrew monarchy. Moses and Torah was old news. Seen to them at least... The things had changed sufficiently that the new ways they practiced their religion must be better than those old ways God had originally laid down. Now, as I did last week, I want to caution us all who call ourselves followers of Christ to look into the mirror and ask some pretty tough questions. But the mirror I'm speaking about is not one made out of reflective glass the mirror of God's Word. Because as James, brother of Jesus, said in the New Testament book of James in chapter 1, don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the Word says, but do it. For whoever hears the Word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. Who looks at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, which gives freedom, and he continues, becoming not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the works it requires, then he'll be blessed in what he does. What word was James speaking of when he was speaking to these followers of Christ and urging them to do what it says? Well, it certainly wasn't the New Testament because it didn't yet exist. Of course it was the Torah. It was the Old Testament, the so-called Hebrew Bible. Now in our day, the New Testament is a legitimate part of that word. But we are to are we really to think that the word that James, the unquestioned leader of the way, was speaking so highly of is now dead and gone. It's a dead and gone word. And only the word that came no sooner than 150 years after him is what he was referring to. 
See, that's just kind of preposterous on its face, isn't it? The Torah is not here to save us. But it is here to lead us to salvation. At the same time, the New Testament wasn't created to give us God's laws and commandments or God's authorized observances and rituals and worship practices or was it given to us to define sin and its consequences because the Old Testament, the word that James was speaking about, had already done that. But within Roman Christianity, and whether you like to hear it or not, this is what all modern Western Christian denominations practice in one form or another. The Torah and the Old Testament portion of the Bible has been declared irrelevant, abolished, perhaps even a danger to our Christian faith. Just as James said, because Christianity has walked away from the mirror of the Torah, we've forgotten what we look like. And when James was speaking of what we look like, which identifies, by the way, who we are, he wasn't meaning a, a, a physical or an ethnic Jewishness. He was meaning what we look like as the followers of the God of Israel and His Son Yeshua. Since Moses' death, Israel slowly but surely looked less and less into that mirror until they stopped looking altogether. And the result is what we're reading about in 2 Kings. Well, in 2 Kings 14, verses 3 and 4, because Amatia was indeed a descendant of the Davidic dynasty and thus fully authorized to sit on Judah's throne, he is compared to his forefather David. And he's judged as not being like David. The primary complaint that the writer of 2 Kings seems to have had against Joash and his son Matzia was a lack of zeal towards the Torah and an insincerity in following God's laws. David, on the other hand, is always characterized as having limitless zeal, fierce loyalty to Jehovah and to his ways. And despite his many failures and his many sins, he had no tolerance for idolatry or graven images. Therefore, it seems to me that this is what sets David apart. And it makes him an earthly standard for Israel's kings from the Lord's perspective. Now, we're going to do quite a lot of reading right about now. First, we're going to reread some of 2 Kings 14. Then we're going to move immediately into 2 Chronicles 25 because it is a parallel account of these events and it provides us with some very important additional information. So, open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 14. We're going to start reading at verse 7. Page 417 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 2 Kings 14 chapter 7. He slaughtered 10,000 men of Edom 
in the Salt Valley. He captured Selah in the war, renaming it Yokt-el as it is today. Then Amatzia sent messengers to Yehoash, the son of Yehoahaz, son of Yehu, king of Israel, with this challenge. Come on, let's have it out face to face. Yehoash, the king of Israel, sent this reply to Amatzia, king of Judah. Once in the Lebanon, the thistle sent a message to the cedar. Give your daughter to my son in marriage, but a wild animal passed by the thistle and squashed it. True. You've defeated Edom. Now you're ambitious. So enjoy the glory, but stay home. Why provoke calamity to your own ruin, yours and Judah's too? But Amatzia wouldn't listen. So Yehoash king of Israel went up, and he and Amatzia king of Judah had it out face to face at Beit Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. Judah was defeated by Israel. Every man fled to his tent. Joash king of Israel took Amatzia king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, prisoner at Beit Shemesh. Then he went to Jerusalem and demolished the wall of Jerusalem between the gate of Ephraim and the corner gate, a section 600 feet long. He took all the gold and silver, all the articles, uh, all the articles he could find in the house of Adonai and in the treasuries of the royal palace, and and hostages. And then he returned to Shamron, Samaria. Other activities of Yehoash that he did, his power, how he fought Amatzia, king of Judah, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Yehoash slept with his ancestors. He was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam took his place as king. Amatzia, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived another 15 years after the death of uh, uh, Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Other activities of Amatzia are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Because of a conspiracy formed against him in Jerusalem, Amatzia fled to Lachish, but they followed him to Lachish and killed him there. They brought his body back on horses. He was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors in the city of David. And then all the people of Judah took uh, Azariah, Zechariah, at the age of 16 and made him king in the place of his father, Amatzia. Azariah recovered a lot for Judah and he rebuilt it. And after that, the king, Amatziah, slept with his ancestors. It was in the 15th year of Amatziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Shomron. He ruled for 41 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. He recovered the territory of Israel between the entrance of Hamath and the Sea of the Arabah in keeping with the word of Adonai, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from God Hefer. For Adonai saw how bitterly Israel had suffered, with no one left, either slave or free, no one coming to Israel's aid. Adonai did not threaten to blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them through Jeroboam, the son of Yehoash. Other activities of Jeroboam and all of his accomplishments, all of his power, how he conducted war, how he recovered Damasek, Damascus, and Hamath for Judah and Israel are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam slept with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah took his place as king. Okay, let's move now to Second Chronicles. We're going to start reading at... Uh, well, we're going to read the whole thing. Let's just read it all. <coughs> Excuse me. 
page 1207 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 25. Amatziah was 25 years old when he began his reign. And he ruled for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yehoadan from Jerusalem. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, but not wholeheartedly. As soon as he had the kingdom firmly in his control, he put to death the servants of his who had assassinated the king, his father. But he did not put to death their children. To, uh, he did not put their children to death. Rather, he acted according to what is written in the Torah in the scroll of Moshe, as Adonai had ordered when he said, "Fathers are not to die for their children, nor are the children to die for their fathers. Every person will die for his own sin." Amatziah assembled Judah together and he put them in order by clans under captains of thousands uh, and captains of hundreds all Judah and Benjamin he registered everyone 21 years old and older and found that there were 300,000 select troops able to go to war capable of using spears and shields he also hired 100,000 strong brave men from Israel for three and a third tons of silver But a man of God came to him and said, King, don't let the army of Israel go with you, because Adonai is not with Israel or with any of the people of Ephraim. And if you do go, then no matter how fiercely you fight, God will cause you to fail before the enemy. For God has the power to help and to cause failure. Amatziah said to the man of God, But what do we do about the three and a third tons of silver that I paid for that army? And the man of God answered, Adonai can give you far more than that. That Amatziah separated out the battalion that had come to him from Ephraim and told them to go back home, which made their anger burn hotly against Judah, and they returned home enraged. Amatziah took courage. He led his people out and he went to the Salt Valley where he killed 10,000 of the people of Seir. The people of Judah took another 10,000 alive brought them to the top of the rock and threw them off the top of the rock so that they were dashed to pieces. Meanwhile, the men in the army that Amatziah had sent back and had not allowed to join them in battle fell on the cities of Judah all the way from Samaria to Beth Haron and killed 3,000 of them and took much spoil. After Amatziah returned from the slaughter of the people from Edom, he brought the gods of the people of Seir and set them up as his own gods prostrating himself before them, offering incense to them. And as a result, the anger of Adonai blazed up against Amatzia, and he sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought out the gods of those people when they couldn't even rescue their own people from you? But as the prophet was speaking to him, he interrupted him. Were you made an advisor to the king? You'd better stop before you get yourself killed. So the prophet stopped. But he added, I know that God is planning to destroy you for having done this and for refusing to listen to my advice. Then after taking counsel, Amatziah king of Judah sent a challenge to Joash the son of Jehoiakaz, the king of Jehu, king of Israel. Come on, let's have it out face to face. Joash the king of Israel sent this reply to Amatziah king of Judah. Once in the Lebanon, the thistle sent a message to the, to the cedar, Give your daughter to my son in marriage, but a wild animal passed by the thistle and squashed it. You say you defeated Edom, which is true, so you're excited and itching for more glory, but stay home. Why provoke calamity to your own ruin, yours and Judah's? But Amatya wouldn't listen, and this was from God, so that he could hand them over 
to their enemies because they had sought the gods of Edom. So Joash king of Israel went up and he and Amatsi king of Judah had it out face to face at Beit Shemesh which belongs to Judah and Judah was defeated by Israel. Every man fled to his tent. Joash king of Israel took Amatsi king of Judah the son of Joash the son of Jehoahaz prisoner at Beit Shemesh and then he brought him to Jerusalem and he demolished the wall of Jerusalem between the gate of Ephraim and the corner gate a section 600 feet long he took all the gold and silver all the articles he could find in the house of God with Oved Edom and the treasures of the royal palace together with hostages then he returned to Samaria Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah lived another 15 years after the death of Joash son of Jehoiakaz king of Israel other activities of Amaziah from beginning to end are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah and Israel from the time that Amaziah turned away from following Adonai they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem so he fled to Lachish they followed him to Lachish and killed him there. They brought his body back on horses, buried him with his ancestors in the city of Judah. <clears throat> There's a couple of important pieces of historical background information in Second Chronicles 25 that we can race right by. First, in verse 5, we see that Benjamin was no longer part of the northern kingdom coalition of tribes. Rather, they had become an ally and partner with Judah. And thus, some of the troops that Amatzia formed uh, for an upcoming military expedition came from Benjamin. Now, Benjamin would, generally speaking, stay within Judah's sphere of influence until first... Israel was exiled to Assyria and then later on when Judah was exiled to Babylon. Now, when it comes to the two exiles, it's hard to place Benjamin because due to their geographical location as a kind of buffer territory between the northern and the southern kingdoms, some of the clans of Benjamin were taken with the ten tribes to Assyria. Other clans more or less melted into Judah and so eventually went to Babylon. It doesn't mean that Benjamin completely lost its identity. In fact, St. Paul identifies himself as a Benjamite. But they did lose their tribal cohesion. Another piece of information is one that I have explained numerous times in prior lessons because it's important for us modern day believers due to its effect upon end times prophecies. In verse 7, Ephraim is equated with Israel. That is, the tribe of Ephraim is made synonymous with the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. This is because Ephraim was by far the most dominant tribe among the northern tribes. And so as was customary in that era, Ephraim lent its name to the nation itself. More and more as we move along in time in these remaining books of the Old Testament, Ephraim's name will be used to identify one large segment of Hebrews. And that segment is what we today might call the Ten Lost Tribes. Again, on the one hand, Ephraim is technically a separate and individual tribe, just one of the twelve. But on the other hand, from here forward, they are representative 
of the entire northern tribal alliance of ten tribes because of their dominant role. Now, now please grasp what I'm saying in this regard. It's not allegory, it's not a doctrine, and it's not speculation. It's just simply <clears throat> well-documented historical fact that is completely validated in the Bible. Now, despite the reality, you may have never heard it in another church or a synagogue. Now, let's take only a moment to refer to one, but perhaps the most exciting and pertinent end times prophecy where this understanding of Ephraim as representative of the ten tribes of the northern kingdoms is present and in fact front and center in it. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 691. <clears throat> We're going to read just a few verses. We're going to read verses uh, 15 through 22. Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 15. The word of Adonai came to me. You, human being, take one stick and write on it for Judah and those joined with him among the people of Israel. Next, take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and the house of Israel who are joined with him. Finally, Bring them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. And when your people ask you what all this means, tell them that Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Judah who are joined with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah and make them a single stick so they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you write are to be in your hand as they watch. And then say to them, Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. And I will gather them from every side. I'll bring them back to their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations. They will never again be divided into two kingdoms. What a great prophecy. Ezekiel was among the first wave of exiles taken to Babylon, taken from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. So even though the exile of the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, was around 130 years earlier, it was fresh enough in people's minds that it was common knowledge that in this kind of context, Ephraim and Israel are synonymous terms. Thus this passage is speaking of the return of the ten lost tribes of the northern kingdom from their Assyrian exile back to the promised land at a time when Judah has already returned and reestablished a Hebrew nation called Israel. Understand that until 1948 following World War II this had never happened. Judah, of course, did return to the land from Babylon. But they returned to the land 
of their former southern kingdom from whence they came. And naturally, they renamed, or rather they retained their national name of Judah. They didn't call their nation Israel because to them, Israel was the name of that former nation of the ten northern tribes. Now see, understanding Bible history and Hebrew culture is everything in understanding end times prophecy and in understanding the Old Testament, isn't it? And that's why we spend so much time with it here in Torah class. Well, let's go back now to 2 Kings 14 and I'll incorporate info from 2 Chronicles as we go along. Verse 7 begins the section whereby King Amatzia attacks Edom. He gains a stunning victory. He becomes overconfident. And he forgets who gives the blessing of such victories to the Hebrew people. And he thinks himself as invulnerable. Now, historically, David was the first among the Israelites to conquer Edom. So, from David's time until the time of Amatzia's great-grandfather, King Yeoram, Edom was a vassal state beholden to Judah. But Yeoram allowed Edom to rebel and to escape from Judah's sphere of influence and it had remained that way for the past 50 to 60 years. Now, Determined to make a name for himself and to return Edom to vassal status under Judah, Amatia attacked Edom and he killed 10,000 enemy soldiers at a place called the Valley of Salt. In time, the place was renamed Yokdiel. Now, although the scripture passage says that he changed the name to Yokdiel, that's not really quite what the verse says. It more alludes to the fact that after the victory, the place name was changed, and this was because of the king. <clears throat> now I'm quite certain of this, because there's no way that King Amatia would have used this name. The name Yoktiel is kind of a play on words that comes from a Hebrew idiom that literally means to set the teeth on edge. In modern English, that loosely means to either give or receive severe criticism. And so the name comes from what happened later. As a result of this victory, Amatia stubbornly refused to heed the harsh and critical warning of a prophet about the king returning home with some of Edom's idols as his war booty. Well, Second Kings gives almost no information about the war with Edom, but Second Chronicles does. The place that Amatia captured is in English rock, the rock. In Hebrew it is Selah. In Greek it is Petra. Yes, that Petra. The famous rock city. First made famous by the Bible and then a little bit later by Indiana Jones. <laughs> <clears throat> and if one has ever been to Petra, what you learn is that it's far more extensive than meets the eye. Now the tourist part 
is big enough of itself, but it extends for a couple more miles at least to the south and to the west. More than likely, that's where the battle took place. And what Second Chronicles 25 explains is that it was a gigantic force with which Amatzia attacked Edom. So they had no chance whatsoever. First, the king mustered a force of 300,000 troops of men from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But that wasn't enough of a comfort level for him. So next he hired 100,000 mercenaries from Israel. He paid close to 7,000 pounds of silver to hire them. Who did he pay it to? Joash, the current king of Israel, great-grandson of Jehu. Joash essentially rented part of his army to Amatzia for the tidy sum of 7,000 pounds of silver for his treasury. See, this kind of transaction wasn't at all uncommon in those days. But something partially derailed Amatzia's plans. And Ish Elohim, a man of God, a prophet, came to the king and he told him, he should not use those northern Israelite troops because they are men who don't worship the God of Israel. God would not grant victory for Judah if they allied with wicked and idolatrous Israel. And Amatzia was reasonably prepared to go ahead and send these 100,000 troops back to Israel, but he had a problem. He'd already paid the 7,000 pounds of silver to the king of Israel and there was no way he was going to get it back. This was an enormous sum of money. He didn't want to lose it. The prophet responded not to be concerned. He'd get, it, get back more in return for his obedience. How would Amatzia get more back? Where was this going to come from? Well, the nature of war in ancient times that most of the time the incentive to go to war was the spoils of war that might be captured. While the victorious king would get the largest portion of the spoils, the troops would also share in it. In fact, the troops' pay was largely based on whatever spoils of war they could take from the enemy. I mean, it's not like they got a monthly paycheck for their military service. So the idea was that Amatzia would capture more than enough uh, of Edom's treasury to repay him plus some for the 7,000 pounds of silver that he'd shipped off to Joash, king of Israel. Amatia responded by releasing those 100,000 troops to go home thinking everything was just fine. But then we find out that this decision caused a violent, a furious reaction from these troops. They had only come for the hope of war booty. Now they're going to be cut out of the deal. The 100,000 troops took out their outrage by looting towns in Judah and killing 3,000 of their residents on their way home. By golly, they weren't going to go home empty-handed. So they simply raided some fellow Hebrews. This demonstrates just how distant, how separated Israel and Judah had become. No one would question that they shared the same patriarch, Jacob. But they now belonged to different nations. 
They had developed different cultures with different moral values. They were hostile, always on the verge of war with one another. Blood may be thicker than water, but money trumps it all. So with only his 300,000 troops from Judah and from Benjamin, <clears throat> Matzia marches off to Edom. He overwhelms the enemy. Then we see a horribly cruel side to the king that's rather shocking. After killing 10,000 Edomites, he takes another 10,000 of these helpless captured Edomite troops to the top of the sandstone cliffs that form the steep walls of the canyon that is Petra, the rock. And the enemy troops are one by one pushed off the cliffs and they fall to their deaths. This gratuitous and unnecessary barbarity reveals the corrupt and dark state of the mind that the kings of Israel had arrived at as well as the kings of Judah. And the sages say that this only sped up that downward spiral that was going to lead Judah into exile. But in an outcome that is all the more shocking, Amatia not only captures some of the Edomite god idols that were no doubt made of very valuable gold and silver, but he takes them home with him and he begins to worship them by bowing down and burning incense before them. I mean, how could a Hebrew king who's just won a great military victory as prophesied by a Hebrew prophet whose patron god is Jehovah turn right around and embrace the gods of the nation that he's just defeated? I mean, the notion boggles our minds, but not nearly as much as it angered the Lord. So the Lord sends another prophet to severely criticize Amatia for not just an unfaithful but truly an absolutely idiotic act of rebellion that can only serve to bring down God's wrath upon Judah. But as the prophet was in the middle of his dressing down of the king, the king interrupts. And he wants to know just who he thinks he's speaking to. Besides, says the king, I didn't appoint you as an advisor. So the king completely rejected God's oracle to him. And the prophet started to leave, but looking back, he told the king that God was planning on destroying him for this abominable behavior. But the king's arrogance knew no bounds, so now he called a meeting of his royal court. And after consulting with them, King Amatia sent a message to King Joash of Israel telling him that he wanted to meet him in the field of battle. This didn't mean a one-on-one -on -one confrontation of kings, of course. This meant one army against another army. Why would he do this? What would possess him to do such a thing? Well, the reason, although obscured in 2 Kings 14, is answered for us in 2 Chronicles 25. It is that A, the king of Israel, had indeed kept Amatia's 7,000 pounds of silver. B, his men had been given permission by King Joash to raid several towns and cities in Judah to collect the booty that they didn't get by being left out of the war with Edom. And C, 3,000 of, of Judah's subjects had been killed. 
and in an honor and shame society, this demanded retribution. But no doubt there's more to it. Amatia had become so emboldened by his smashing victory over Edom. And after telling God's prophet, he wasn't interested in God's word. To him it seemed as though there was no consequences that had come of it. So he felt that he had to some degree face down Yehovah and won. But as powerful as Amatia felt, the king of Israel knew he had the superior forces at his disposal. And so he taunted Amatia with a sarcastic and insulting reply that was in the form of a parable. And the parable compared Amatia to a lowly thistle himself to a mighty cedar of Lebanon. The give your daughter to my son for a wife. That's referring to a kind of social relationship that's common among kings, which the king of Israel says he'd never entertain by intertwining his family with such an inferior thistle as the family of the king of Judah. The trampling down of the thorn bush by a wild animal refers to Israel easily defeating Judah without even half trying. Then the king of Israel offers some advice. Don't let your arrogance at defeating Edom Edom get the best of you. Stay home and stay alive. Don't be a fool to challenge me. Well, verse 11 in 2 Kings 14 explains that Amatia just wouldn't be swayed. So Judah and Israel went to battle at Beit Shemesh, which was Judahite territory. This means Amatia's army should have had an advantage. The battle was over quickly. As the Judahite army ran for their lives, Amatia was captured by Joash. Kings don't usually kill other kings. And he was taken to Jerusalem so that he could witness a large part of his capital city's critical defensive walls demolished. The breach was made from the, uh, where the, uh, from the Ephraim gate to where the wall turns towards the south. The Ephraim Gate is today known as Jaffa Gate. And I've taken hundreds of tour members through those gates. The huge 600 foot long wall section that dismantled was the northern flank of Jerusalem. It would have taken years to rebuild this wall. Thus Jerusalem would lay vulnerable for a long time. Why this particular section of wall? Why was it chosen? Well, it was symbolic because Israel was north of Jerusalem. So this represented that Israel could enter Jerusalem at will. And by the way, notice that in the end times, Jerusalem's enemies will come from what direction? The north. And the battle of Armageddon will be fought in Jezreel, which is also north of Jerusalem. But in addition, Joash looted Judah's precious temple of much gold and silver. This would be taken back to Samaria to adorn the golden calf shrines and whatever other images and idols that might suit King Joash. This shows us the complete lack of respect that the king of Israel had for God's holy temple. The goal here was to make it clear that the God of Judah 
was inferior to the God of Israel. All battles between kings and kingdoms were seen as battles of the gods. And just as they were winning and losing, as there were winning and losing kings, there were also corresponding winning and losing gods. Naturally, King Amatia's personal palace was also looted. But in addition, some of his wives and his children were taken hostage. This completed the humiliation of the king of Judah. Part of the reason for taking these family members was to ensure Amatia's cooperation. No doubt the children of members of the royal court were also taken so as to douse any thought of a future rebellion by these aristocrats. Amatia, most of his family, several of his uh, court and their families were all hauled off to Samaria. Well, in verses 15 and 16, we find out that in time Joash died and his son Jeroboam II, the second Jeroboam, took his place. Now, Joash, of course, was buried in Samaria, the capital of Israel, but Amatia, well, he would remain under house arrest for many years up in Samaria, his humiliation mounting day by day. We will finish up chapter 14 and get well into chapter 15 next week.